Well, good morning. It is so good to see everyone here. It was so fun to stand in the back and just watch you worshiping. And man, what a great night we had last night at the park. Um, just so thankful for that. I want to start by just asking you guys a question. Um, have you ever experienced a life-changing event? Something that happened to you or something that happened in your life has just never been the same. You know, I was thinking about that. Um, there, we, we face many life-changing events. And uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about the, transfer, the, the transfiguration, which was a life-changing event for the disciples. And as I think about life-changing events, one of the life-changing events in my life was my wedding. Uh, if, if any of you have gotten married, man, that changes the direction of your life. And, and I, just, I still remember Michelle walking down the aisle and then later finding out that, that while her dad was, while they were standing in the back of the church about to come through the aisle, uh, Michelle's dad looks over at her and says, hey, look, if you're not sure you want to do this, it's not too late. We can go. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I, I love that. You know, just, it's, it's a dad who uh, cared more about his daughter than all the money he spent or all his friends, what his friends might think. And uh, I was also really thankful when I found out that Michelle's response was to say, I've never been more sure about anything in my life. So I'm glad she said that to him. Um, I think about the birth of my kids and how every single one of those things was just so significant in my life. But I'll tell you, one of the things that when I look back at transforming events in my life, it's been um, being with people in the last weeks, days, and moments of their life. And I, I think about, um, you know, there's a few, a few of those times that stand out to me. One was my dad, um, just uh, in, in his last week of life, just when he had days left, laying in bed, worried about his future and, and what was going to happen when he died and just going, reminding him of the gospel and seeing that peace that came into his life. I remember a, a couple, couple miles from our church, um, a lesbian couple, and, and one of them had um, cancer and was dying, was at the end of her life, looked like a skeleton with skin. And I remember um, her, her girlfriend calling the church just a couple miles away, a conservative, Bible-believing church. And I ended up on the other end of the phone and just saying, um, can you come say something that will help um, this, this lady feel better? And I just remember saying, um, I'm happy to come but my ultimate goal can't be to just say something to make her feel better. I can tell her the truth. I can tell her what God says in his word, and I think that will be encouraging, and that's what I can come do. And she asked me to come, and, and just being there and seeing this lady in intense pain and just praying, God, um, give her enough relief to be able to think about the gospel. And I just had a list of verses that I just went there and read to her and talked to her and seeing God answer that prayer and, and to see her have a moment and pray to receive Christ and, and just to see how much uh, this lady that was with her cared about her and she like was giving her the freedom to become a Christian in the sense of just saying, yes, you can do this. And she prayed along with her. Not that, she, not, that, not that her girlfriend became a believer, but she's just looking at this person that she had spent time with and, and being so concerned about what she was going through. And I remember a 43-year-old lady who um, had just dr drank herself to death. And I remember getting the call saying she's in the hospital and she has 
Um, she has days, days or weeks to live. We're not sure. And there was so many things going on in my week. And I just thought, you know what? No, I'm going to just put everything down and I'm going to go. And going to the hospital and just seeing this lady laying in bed and just feeling this um, fear and then sharing the gospel with her and seeing her pray to receive Christ and then asking her, so how you doing? And she's like, I'm good. And just, just that, that amazing comfort that comes um, from the Holy Spirit in that moment, those were life-changing events for me. And, and while it's most significant what happened in the lives of these individuals that I was talking to, the, the, the stress, the difficulty, all the pressure, there's a lot of things on my side of going to have those conversations and just seeing how God just worked and how faithful he was. Um, but I'll just tell you, and this is true for me, but and it's true for all of you, while those were life-transforming events for those individuals, certainly, as we think about it, the day we became a Christian, um, that was the day our life completely changed. Seeing Jesus for who he really is in his glory, in his majesty, is a life-changing event. And when God allows us to see that, it's going to give us an urgency for spiritual things. There are so many people as they go through life that, that, that people's sickness and their jobs and things like that, those are the big things in life. But when you truly understand who Jesus is, it's the spiritually significant things that matter. When we see Jesus for who he is, it gives us a confidence to face people, society, and circumstances because we know that Jesus is the God of the universe and he holds us and he holds life in his hands. It makes us humble in how we approach other people because we know that we're not okay spiritually. We're not okay in our standing before God because we're so great. We know that the only reason we're okay is because of what Jesus did for us and that affects how we think about other people and how we treat other people. And the other thing that it does is when we see Jesus for who he is, it gives us a trust where we look at Jesus and we just, we trust him. We trust what he says. We trust what he tells us to do because we know that he is the all-knowing, loving God and that he cares about us. And, and in spite of how his glory and how God's glory and God's holiness and God's power is so undoing, it's so devastating. And yet when you put that alongside how much God loves us, it, it makes it okay. And it makes us able to stand. And so that is a transforming thing. And there, there are four things really that happen in this passage that I'm going to point out. And these four things, they, in, they will inform your perspective on life. These four things that happen, these four events, they demand a proper response. And I'll just tell you what they are. The first one is that there is a promise of justice. There's a promise of justice, and that is what produces in us a spiritual urgency. Um, there is a preview in this passage of the return of Jesus. Uh, Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of himself coming in his majesty, and that promise of his return, it produces a confidence in so many things. We can confidently face everything in life because we know how it all ends and we know the role that Jesus plays. Now, there's a, there's a glimpse 
of Jesus' glory, his full glory wasn't displayed or everybody would have died. But there was a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, and that produces in us humility. And the other thing is that there is a confirmation that happens here about Jesus that comes directly from heaven. We don't have to wonder, did we get it right? Are we misunderstanding what the disciples said? You've probably all heard people say Jesus never claimed to be God. That's something that church, church historians kind of produced. The disciples never said Jesus was God. That was a surprise to them. This is something that came later. No. We know directly from heaven that Jesus is who he said he was. And so we're going to look at this passage. It is an amazing passage, and we're going to just see this glimpse of God's glory. So the context here is that Jesus has been ministering. He's been doing amazing things, and the religious leaders have basically led the people in a rebellion against Jesus to reject him. And Jesus has just in this last chapter, he's predicted the church. You know, we're the church. We are the body of Christ. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus talked about you. He talked about foothills by saying, I will build my church. Like, have you thought about what it means? And we know that foothills, we have a building, but foothills is not a building. Foothills is us. It's the believers who gather here. And Jesus said he will build, he promised that, that he will build this body of believers. We see in this that Jesus came to deliver spiritual rescue, not political rescue. And we see that Jesus, this chapter ends with Jesus calling us to total commitment, to sacrifice our life on earth, to be willing to sacrifice our life on earth in order to gain eternal life. And we know that our level of commitment is not what earns our salvation. That is a reflection of a, of a heart that sees Jesus for who he is, that sees these things that his disciples saw, that reads about these things that the disciples wrote about, and says, okay, I see that and I believe that. And the natural, obvious response is to say, okay, I am totally committed to you, Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to just, or 16, Matthew chapter 16. And um, we are going to um, really be looking at verse 27. But let's start in verse 25, and let's just read. So Matthew 16, 25 says, For whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And then Jesus is going to just remind us that, that there is a guarantee that he is going to come back and he is going to bring justice. And, and that is a comforting thought for some, and it is a terrifying thought for others. And as we go through life, we have this in mind. This is the way a Christian views the world. It's how they view their kids. It's how they view their friends. It's how they view their family members. This is how a Christian looks at the world. It's the thing that informs our view of the world. And it just says this, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
You know, Jesus is coming back to this world, and he is going to bring justice. You know, there, there right now is this cry for justice, and there are so many different perspectives on what justice is. And, you know, the truth is that, that our hope for justice is not ultimately found in any legal system. A perfectly functioning legal system can never ultimately produce justice. When you think about the crimes that happen, things that are done to people, there are things that happen that can never be taken back, that cannot be repaired or fixed. And so we trust that ultimately Jesus will bring justice. And uh, that's something that we want for our society. That's something that Christians should be working toward. But ultimately, that's something that we trust and rely on Jesus for. And we know that no matter what happens in this life, nobody escapes the justice of God. And um, that's actually why, as Christians, we return good for evil. Did you know that? Like when people wrong you, the reason that you don't, that, that we're not on a mission to make sure that we receive justice, and if somebody wrongs us, we're going to wrong them back. We're, we're going to give people what they deserve. Christians don't live that way because we know that Jesus is coming back to bring justice. This is what Romans 12, 17 says. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So that's what God says. That's why Christians live the way they do, because we know that ultimately God will bring justice you know, for, uh, 2 Corinthians talks about the fear of, of God and just and thinking about the fact that we as believers will stand and give an account to God for our life. This is what it says, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Verse 11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's also known to you and to your conscience. This is the Apostle Paul saying that we know that ultimately every person will stand before God. And there's a debate in this passage when you look at the whole context. In what sense? Like, what's the fear of Christ? Is it, is it the fear of Christ that other people are going to face judgment? Is it fear that we're going to be in trouble if we don't evangelize? Like, there's those two things. But the fear of God, seeing who Jesus is, knowing that judgment is coming, we persuade men. Uh, we are about evangelism. We're not trying to f just, hey, we want to fix everyone's marriage. We want to fix people's parenting. We want to help people have good jobs. But that is ultimately not our end. It's people's eternal standing before God. And we are motivated. Amos chapter 5, verse 18 and following. Um, Amos is talking to the nation of Israel, and he just says, you guys are looking forward to the return of Christ, but what you don't realize is that's going to be a day of darkness, not a day of light. And he, he says these things. Let me all just put these words up here. Um, he says, this is what the return of Christ is like for religious people who don't genuinely know the Lord. It's going to be as if in verse 18, a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned against the wall and a serpent bit him. 
it's just like he's just saying it's going to be a day of disaster. And, and when you run from one disaster, you'll run right into the next. As we think about that, that's a serious thing. But then on the other hand, as we consider what um, the return of Christ is for believers, um, we're to be motivated as believers. We're looking forward to it. That's when everything is fixed. That's when we see Jesus. And this is what it says in Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. You know, as believers, we're not sitting around going, oh, man, I keep track of all the things I did wrong. I'm in trouble one day. No. Jesus died to forgive us, and that's why we share the gospel. That's why we evangelize. That's why we have a spiritual urgency is because we know that anybody can be forgiven. Jesus will forgive anyone. And so that's something that motivates us. We just see that God's going to bring justice, and that's terrifying if you don't know Jesus, and it's so comforting if you do, because God is just and the justifier. That's in Romans 3. Here's the second thing. The second thing that we're going to see here is that this passage is a preview of the return of Jesus. The transfiguration is a foretaste of what is going to happen. Jesus shows this to his disciples. Like they're, they're going through this very confusing time where, where Jesus has been healing people. He's doing all these miracles. They recognize him as the Messiah and they're confused. And they're confused because then he starts talking about the fact that he's going to die. And Jesus says, no, I am going to die. That is part of the plan. But let me just remind you, it's all going to be okay because I'm coming back. And he gives them this glimpse of himself. Look what it says here in verse 28. It says, truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that is a very confusing verse. You know, it's like, of all the confusion going on for the disciples, then Jesus says that. And the rest of us read it and go, okay, wait a minute. He's talking to his disciples, and they all died, and Jesus isn't back yet. So what is this? And so I, I just want to tell you that Jesus coming in his kingdom, that word for kingdom can also um, refer to royal splendor. See Jesus coming in royal splendor. And so there, there have been several uh, um, proposals for what that could mean. I believe it's a reference to the transfiguration as do many. Some would see it as Jesus's resurrection and ascension or the coming of the Holy Spirit that was promised in the New Testament church. Some associated with the destruction of Jerusalem. I don't understand that one. Um, or the second coming. And I would just say um, I don't see it as the second coming because the second coming hasn't happened and they all tasted death. They all died. And this obviously is a reference to the second coming. So I think this is specifically talking about Jesus' transfiguration where he gives people a window into his return. Look at verse, chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them up to a high mountain. So he says that to them, and six days later. Now, an interesting thing is that in Luke... Luke says, now about eight days later, and it's funny how people will take these various statements and they'll say, oh, the Bible's, the Bible's inaccurate, Gospels record things differently, but actually the fact that Matthew says six days after six days and Luke says about eight days later 
is actually a demonstration of the truthfulness of Scripture. Because if they were just copying each other, if people were just making things up, nobody's going to accidentally write six days and then eight days. But if you think about it, they actually are saying the same thing. So on day one, that's the day Jesus told them. And then, so you don't count that day, but then there are six days. And Matthew says, after six days. So then that means after six days have passed, so now you're at seven days, and then on the eighth day, um, this event occurs. So it's after six days. But Luke just says it's about eight days. So part of one day, six days in between, and part of another day. So that's two people looking at the exact same event, giving the exact same timeline, and describing them differently. And so it just says that uh, one of the things to notice here is that he takes Peter, James, and John. Now, not everybody has the same experience. So one of the things I often have thought about, well, what if I was there? What if I saw it? Man, that would have been so amazing for me. But one of the things for us to remember is that this, this event impacted all of the disciples, but not all of them got to see it. Three of them got to see it. And then they reported it to the other ones. And guess where you and I stand? right next to all the other disciples who weren't there, but we heard about it. So this event should transform us as well. Now, these disciples, they were business partners. They were there for the raising of Darius's daughter in Matthew chapter 9. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they were here at the Transfiguration. These three disciples, there were several elements of Jesus' ministry that only they saw. And this event was a life-transforming event. Uh, we never hear from James, the, the apostle James. He never writes about this event because he's killed in, in uh, Acts chapter 12. So he's the first disciple, um, and other than Judas, the only disciple whose death is actually recorded in Scripture. So he's killed, and he never writes about it. But both Peter and John write about this event and how it impacted them. In fact, uh, Peter writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And he's talking about the truthfulness of Scripture and how he is so confident that everything that the Bible says is really going to happen. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's talking about this event. Um, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so he looks back at this event and he just says, this is an anchor, this gives me confidence. But then he goes on and actually just a few verses later is where he writes his verse about how every word of scripture comes about by the Holy Spirit moving people. He doesn't say, um, yeah, I was there. I'm the only one who can know. He connects that with the inspiration of Scripture, that we can know for sure that these things are true. John, in John chapter 114, you've all memorized this verse, I'm sure. John 114 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you are going to see in this passage Jesus' glory and then an expression of his grace. 
So these disciples go up to a high mountain, and there's kind of a debate about which mountain they, they climbed up on, and there's like three suggestions for these mountains. One is Mount Herbin, and that is 9,000 feet. So that is a high mountain. It's the highest mountain in that area. Another suggestion is Mount Muron, Muram. And that's 4,000 feet. And then Mount Tabor, which is 2,000 feet. So maybe that mountain's the highest one in the, in the area, but 2,000 feet doesn't seem that high to me. So a high mountain, that's got to be four or nine. The truth is that I don't know where it happened, but it happened in a high mountain somewhere around there. And they were just coming from Caesarea Philippi. But, but the one thing I know is that what happened is more important than where it happened. Let's consider the third thing. We're going to see here that... These disciples get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, and it produces in them humility. Look at verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So just a little bit about the context here. What we find out in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus actually climbed the mountain to pray, and he's praying. And as he's praying, his disciples, what are they doing? He took them up to pray with him. There's three main disciples. Uh, just tell me, what are the disciples doing right now? You haven't read it, and I'm sure you don't remember the story, but let's just take a guess. If Jesus is praying, what are the disciples doing? Yeah, they're sleeping. Let's bow our heads and pray, and they start to snore. And what happens is, as Jesus is praying, he is transfigured, he is transformed. And what happens is God allows Jesus' glory, a glimpse of it, to be displayed. So Jesus starts shining, and his clothes are white. And it's not like a light shining on Jesus. It's a light shining from Jesus. And so these disciples are sleeping, and they kind of wake up. And as they look at him, they see him transformed and changed. You know, that reminds us of... Hebrews, where it just talks about Jesus, is displays God's glory. We know that in Revelation, um, in, in the new heavens and new earth, there's no sun. Where does the light come from? It comes from God himself. And Jesus is displaying this glory because he's God. So Hebrews 1.3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus described with that same glory. So there is no question who Jesus is. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a man. Um, when Jesus took on humanity, God veiled his glory because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to walk around. And so that's what happened. But Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. So just with these few things, the next time you're talking to a friend who says, yeah, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Bible never says Jesus is God. That's just things that the church made up. Well, we know that that's not true. So one of the things that I think is interesting here is that um, Jesus appears and Moses and Elijah appear. 
Like think about what that would be like for the disciples. I, I just think about the simple thing. I, I went to uh, Washington, D.C., and I went through the museums, and I didn't really know what was going to be in them, but I just decided I'm there. I'm going to go to every single museum. Michelle was not with me, or that wouldn't happen. I'm like, I want to go with this friend of mine, and yes, please stay home, because I want to actually see this stuff. And so I just spent all day um, for an entire week just going through every part. And, and the, the thing that stood out to me, it's weird, there were a few things, but the thing that really stood out to me was I saw George Washington's blue coat. You know that picture that you've seen of George Washington? They actually have that coat. You can look at it, and it's like that seems like it happened so long ago, and there's a bullet hole in it. And to just stand there and, and to be able to just look at that coat and go, man, I'm just thinking, okay, George Washington wore that. This president that I've read about in history, and there it is, and it's real. And, and just like it was just this amazing thing. I mean, something as simple as like a coat. Now, can you imagine that you've grown up? You've read the Old Testament. You know how prominent Moses was and how prominent Elijah was. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear. Man, talk about a meeting of like the most important, most amazing people. I mean, that must have been just this incredible event that the disciples are there. And uh, it's amazing how Peter ends up responding. Um, verse 4, and Peter said, Lord, is it good it's good that we're all here. Hey, hey, this is nice. I'm glad we're here. This is great. If you wish, I can make tents here for you. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Like, I mean, this, this event happens. This is such a significant thing. And Peter just starts talking. You ever, does that ever happen to you? Or when you get under stress, you just talk? You think, what am I saying? And why am I doing this? And Peter just starts rambling. Let's build some houses for you guys. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. One of the things I like about the difference between Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, because Peter was, was kind of the person that was discipling Mark and kind of overseeing Mark as he wrote uh, the book. Mark adds this little phrase. And I'm sure that, like, this book's been written and people are like, man, Peter, what a dumb thing to say. And, and this is what Luke says when Luke writes about it. And then Mark also. It says in verse 9, uh, or chapter 9, verse 6 of Mark, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. He just goes, hey, yeah, Mark, um, I, just, I was so scared. I didn't know what to say. I just started saying stuff. Like, I could see him telling him that. In Luke chapter 9, verse 33, it says that he didn't even know what he said. Like, have you ever done that? You're just talking. You don't even know what you said. Like, this was such an amazing moment. And they were so scared, and they just didn't know what to do. And Peter just starts talking. We'll come back to that in a second. But, you know, when you think about Moses, man, he led Israel through the Exodus. Um, he led them through the wandering in the wilderness. God gave him the Ten Commandments. And, and Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. And after all of that, he is disrespectful to God, and God says, you can't go into the promised land. And I just think, well, okay, Moses, there's your chance. You get to meet Jesus on the mountain, and you're in there. Elijah raised pe people from the dead, went to the top of the mountain, killed 450 prophets of Baal. Um, he prayed that there would be no rain, and a drought came, and then he prayed for rain, and there was rain. And he never died. He just said, God, I'm ready to go home. And God sent him out, sent somebody to take his place, and took him up into heaven on a chariot. And so that's what happened to um, Moses. Now, I'm sorry, Elijah. 
Now, you guys remember when we were going through the book of Revelation and talked about these two witnesses that were going to come? And I told you there's these theories on the two witnesses. Some people guess that it's Elijah because he never died and Enoch because Genesis tells us that Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. So there's two people in the Bible who never died. And some people guess that it's Elijah and Enoch. Since they never died, then they can come back and they can have a chance to die. But many people also choose Moses and Elijah, and this is why. Because if this is a preview of the return of Jesus, then maybe these are the two witnesses that are going to come. And those are all great theories. And uh, again, the Bible doesn't say, so I don't necessarily have a strong opinion. But here's a question. Why were Moses and Elijah the ones that showed up? Well, um, Jesus talks about over and over the law and the prophets, right? The law was written by Moses and the prophets, that's Elijah. So maybe this is the collection of just this verification that the people who wrote about the fact that that Jesus was going to be the Messiah and that he would come, they're standing there having a conversation with Jesus. If Jesus wasn't true, if he wasn't real, that wouldn't have happened because they studied the Old Testament to figure out who will the Messiah be and what will he be like. And the two people who wrote about that, Elijah represents the prophets, the prophets. Another one is that um, Moses represents those who have died and Elijah represents those who will be raptured in the church. You know, that's another one of the things I just think about in general. I could probably come up with 15 reasons why Moses and Elijah are there. And so I don't know why, and I, and I don't want to speculate about that, but I will say this, Moses and Elijah were there, and that was significant. And, and there, then you just have Peter who just starts talking. And as he's just talking, God actually interrupts him. And here's where we're going to see um, our third point, or our fourth point, is that there is a confirmation from heaven that builds trust and confidence in who Jesus is, this confirmation from heaven. Um, here's what we see here. Uh, it says in verse 5, And he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. When else was that statement made? Was that his baptism? That uh, God from heaven said, this is my son. And again here, he repeats it. But then he says, listen to them. Like here's Peter. He's just babbling. He's just talking. And God from heaven says, Peter, this is my son. Listen. Like quit talking and just listen. And that is the message for so many of us so often. God has to interrupt him and identify what's important. You know, that, this emphasizes the way that God says listen to him. He's not just saying listen now. That's like this ongoing habit. He's saying you need to always be listening to Jesus. He doesn't say listen to Moses. And he doesn't say listen to Elijah. He says listen to Jesus. You know, we study the Bible and we have reverence for the Bible and it is inspired and we know that it's true, but it is not because of the people who wrote it. It's because God wrote it through people. The significance is not the people. The reverence we have from, for the word of God comes because it is God's words to us. And so this is something very powerful. And, and Peter talks about this. Peter just talks about how this impacted him. And so he's told to be quiet. He's told to just listen to God. And this statement from God 
inspires trust in Peter. He says this in 2 Peter 1.16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. So God tells Peter, listen. And then what does Peter tell us? Listen, pay attention. And it goes on in verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. And here's how where we see God's glory and God's love. They fall on their face. They are terrified. And how does Jesus respond? But Jesus came and he touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. Like think about the magnitude of God's love and God's care and God's grace. See, if Jesus was just an average person and he said, arise, have no fear, we, we, we would go, oh, yeah, yeah, no big deal. That's cool. It's kind of like when you're walking around and, and you bump into somebody. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You know, you just bump into somebody and they, they smile at you and they say, oh, hey, how you doing? You go, oh, good, good, good to see you. And you have like a little short conversation with somebody you don't know. And it's just not, not a big deal. That happens every day. But have you, ever, have you ever bumped into somebody who saw somebody famous, bumped into Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, some, some famous hero? Oh, man, I, I bumped into Tom Cruise in the store the other day, and, and they bump into somebody famous, and, and this famous person just has a conversation. You ever heard somebody say, oh, I met so-and-so, and you wouldn't believe it. They're just such a normal person. They just, they, they're just like average and nice, and they talk to them, and they're just, oh, this is so awesome. I talked to this person. They treated me just like I was one of them. And when we have this high view of people, uh, their grace, their, their compassion, uh, treating you like an equal is so much more significant because of who they are, because of your perspective of who they are. And when we see Jesus' glory and we see these disciples terrified and Jesus says, have no fear. Like without a view of God's glory and his holiness, we completely miss the significance of his love and his grace and his mercy. In verse uh, 9, it goes on and it says, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus' priority is to go to the cross, and he says this vision's important, but not to stop me from going to the cross. It's to be an encouragement after and so he tells him this in verse 10, it says, and the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? I mean, here Elijah's come and then Elijah's gone and they know that when Jesus is coming that Elijah's gonna play a role. And so they're, they're curious, they're confused. And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. They did whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus just tells his disciples, you may be confused, but everything is proceeding exactly according to plan. That's the message of um, the transfiguration. Um, we see Jesus, and we see that we need to be listening to him. We see all we have in Christ, and it is my prayer for you and for me 
that after we consider the words of this passage, that we will grow in our sense of urgency for the gospel, that we will grow in a sense of urgency to function in the church, that we'll grow in a confidence for God's plan for our life and for our ministry, and that we'll grow in humility as we understand the significance of who Jesus is and who we are, and that we'll be the kind of people that just trust Jesus. Hey, Jesus, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. That's my prayer, that this will impact you and me the way it impacted the disciples. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness, and Lord, for this little glimpse that you've given us into what your return will be like and just how incredible that display of glory was and how it impacted the disciples. Lord, may a vision and a knowledge of who you are, may it change us. And God, I pray that the same way those disciples were witnesses, Lord, that we would be witnesses. The same way that they loved and built the church, that we will love and build the church. God, we ask that you would strengthen us and empower us in your name. Amen.